Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Jill Zender, and I'm a nurse practitioner at Children's Health in Dallas, Texas, here today with my co-host Sadie Rodriguez from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and David Werho from Rady Children's in San Diego. Today, we will be speaking with our PCICS award winners, Dr. Lara Shecker-Damian and Louise Callow, the Patty Hickey Award winner. Congratulations to you both. Thank you so much for joining us. We want to chat with you about your journeys and what it means to you to win this award. Hi, I'm Lara Shekademian. I'm the Chair of Pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine and Pediatrician-in-Chief at Texas Children's Hospital. I've been working in cardiac intensive care for nearly 30 years. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Hi, I'm Louise Callow, and I'm a nurse practitioner in pediatric cardiac surgery at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I've been there for 45 years and counting, and it is a pleasure to be here today. Well, we both congratulate you for winning the PCICS Anthony Chang and Patty Hickey Awards. It's a tremendous honor. And this is the first time ever where both winners have been women. So, what a landmark. Great job. The first time ever the Anthony Chang Award has been given to a woman. Mm-hmm. So that's huge. That's an honor. Thank you. It was quite touching to see sort of as you spoke, the journey of medicine, as you put it, the past, present and future, and just your um, recognition of your own journey. And I think may, perhaps reflective of other women in the journey and how that's been. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit more with our listeners about what it means to you specifically as a woman or from a woman's perspective. Thanks, Sadie. Um you know, I, as I said in the talk, it back in the day, we just did our job, we trained, we accepted the environment, whatever it brought to us, whether they were positive or never negative experiences, that was just part of, of life, part of training. And I don't want to, for a moment, suggest that every minute of my training and younger faculty years were not enriching. I was very lucky with the mentorship I had, being in the right place at the right time every step of the way. And I never for a moment um, was conscious, if you like, of any any difference. But of course, you get to the 2010s and now 2020, 22. Times have changed and it really does make you look back. And my appreciation for some of the differences along the way and possibly for how we can help women in medicine and women who want to lead in medicine in the future is is something that really I've become very passionate about in the last five or six years. Um, Like I said in my talk, it probably took me 10 or 15 years to accept that the way it was was probably not okay even at the time, but definitely not okay now. And what I want to do now is role model in in terms of positive attributes um, and help the way forward for younger people in medicine. And that's not just women, it's women, it's men, it's underrepresented minorities, it's well-represented minorities. I think everyone needs a fair chance and the same bite at this. And really, you know, I say it's my dream that hopefully by the time I retire, we won't even be having these conversations because it won't be necessary. It'll just be 
ingrained in our DNA and in our leadership style and in our communication style. And it, it just won't need to feature anymore. But I think we're still at the stage we have to be deliberate about it and help people overcome some of the assumptions. Louisa, I'll hand it over to you. The journeys are similar. You know, you start a long time ago with the vision of where you want to go and what you want to be and what you want to do when you grow up. And then you just, you just move forward and you just do things because most of the time there isn't anything that was done before. So you just do things and then you just make a path and then gradually you build something that's really important and you make a presence and where you need to be and what needs to be done. And you fill gaps in care and you feel gaps in education and you feel gaps with families and then you just continue to move forward in what you can do. When I started back in 1987 in this particular role, it was male physicians and female nurse practitioners and that's just the way it's been. And it's been amazing to see not only how nurse practitioner practice has developed, evolved, become accepted and and beyond accepted is expected as part of CICU and part of acute care medicine and healthcare. And then it's also changed so that there's as great a chance that I'll be part of a female-female diet or part of a female physician-male nurse practitioner diet as it would be the other way around. So things have changed. Diversity has increased. Some inequities have been found that we need to address, but all in all, it's just been a glorious time. And I will say that I am frequently, I always say that I am exceedingly lucky to have found a career that every day, I don't know, yeah, there were bad days, but I can't remember a time where I had to go to work and hated it or hated to wake up in the morning. Yeah, you're tired, but truly hated to wake up in the morning and drive to work. And once you get there and Dr. Beauvais would always tell me breakfast starts you know, with rounds. That's just where you begin your day. And you start rounding and it's just like, it's just like water. I just couldn't live without it. So I'm very, very, very lucky that I've been able to be a part of this and be a part of Pixis. Can I ask when both of you started your careers, if someone had told you, you know, in 2022, after a global pandemic, you're going to be sitting in a room recording a podcast in Miami and it's going to be because you received these incredible honors. Just tell me a little bit about what would have gone through your mind compared to what your experience is now. That's a great question. And it's one I've never been asked. (laughs) I would have probably laughed because honestly, when I started out, cardiac intensive care wasn't really a career. Um, And At that stage, I would have said, well, no, 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 I'm going to be getting grants, I'll be doing research, and I'll be probably buried in a laboratory. It would honestly not have occurred to me that I'd be sitting here today. But I think importantly, the fact that if someone had told me in those days that there'd be a society that we would all be signing up for and a thriving society that we all want to be a part of, I would have just been rather surprised and said, well, Cardiac intensive care is just a branch of cardiology, and it always will be. 
So I would have, I would have probably sniggered <laughs> and just continued with, with, um, you know, with my research or whatever I was doing at the time. I think I had the same reaction now as I probably would have then. No way. No way. Uh, it is incredibly humbling to receive an award like this. I would never in 1978 have thought that my nursing career would have taken me through all of this very long journey and all of the things that I've seen and all the changes that have happened. Of course, I would never have thought about a global pandemic and even the effects that that had. So I would say that, again, unbelievable that a society like this would birth itself from such a small, tiny 1978 group of patients, physicians, nurses, units, hospitals. I mean, small, tiny. You know, we didn't do an orbits. We didn't do these things. And now we have research and we we have social media. And so it's just an, an incredible experience to have been part of all of this and to have seen all these changes and in terms of how I would have responded back then. I basically would have just laughed and rolled my eyes and said, oh, you've got to be kidding. But then again, we're not here today because we would have just laughed and said, no way. We're here today because we saw a way and we pushed forward. So I probably would have thought that initially. And then the next morning when I woke up, would have said, hey, that's not a bad idea. Let's figure this out. I'm so full. I think as humans, we all love a good narrative. We all love a good story. And just listening to some of your stories unfold and, you know, now things have played out, the dust have settled, but I'm wondering, you know, along the way to use some of your words earlier, where you said when you're, you know, you're starting out, you have a vision for yourself and we mm -hmm. all have mm -hmm. ideas of who we want to be and where we want to go. And then life happens. And sometimes there's left turns and detours that can lead to sometimes painful places, but sometimes wonderful, unexpected turn of events that you could have never planned for or imagined. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, here you are with these beautiful stories, some scars. What would you have said to your earlier self or in the moments where it was ambiguous and unclear, just as a message for some of our listeners on their journey as things are unfolding? What is some of the wisdom or hope that you may share? Well, back in the day, the word resilience wasn't, you just never heard that word. I would say that in my life today, that is probably a word that I think has gotten cooked into everything around me, including myself. And what would I say to my younger self back then? Yes, it's a circuitous route and it gets cloudy and it gets muddy and it's cold and sometimes dark. But I've learned through that journey and what I say to myself every single time I start to go to the dark side is it'll be okay. It's going to work out the way it's supposed to work out. It's going to be okay. And you have to learn things and, you know, you have to learn that you're not always going to be right. You have to learn how to accept the fact that you were wrong. You are going to make mistakes and you have to learn how to own up to those and learn from them. And that's okay. You're going to have to learn how 
to say goodbye to a patient. And you're going to have to learn that that's really okay too. So just go, you know, going through those things is not necessarily bad. It's growth. Growth hurts. Growth sometimes stretches you to places that are uncomfortable. And without that, you won't grow. So I just kind of felt like every time I was in that place, I was going to be better when I came out the other side. I just had to keep pushing. I completely agree. And I think you and I probably benefit, Louise, from being of a certain generation where it was okay not to be sure where you were necessarily going. Mm -hmm. And there are these kind of forks in the road. There are a few in my career where I literally took a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. And I would say that not a single of these kind of weird things I did, I would ever in my career at least, <laughs> no, I would ever um, say if I went through it all again, I would do differently. I think for physicians, it's almost if you kind of veer off the standard accepted training path, residency, fellowship, attending, if you veer off that path, I think there's a fear that you may never get back to the path. So I encourage people to take measured what might be perceived as a risk, I would just say it's just a measured um, career decision that may or may not be the one, but it will nev almost never be something you regret. But I was lucky to be in certain places at certain, there are certain moments in my career where, you know, had I not done what someone suggested, mm -hmm. had I instead just worried about it for so long that the opportunity had passed, I probably wouldn't be here now. Mm -hmm person that's resonating with that statement, it's okay, is so much non-judgment. Like this is the path. Don't judge yourself. Don't judge the experience. And that feels so freeing. Laura, what resonates with your words for me is that curiosity and mm -hmm. to sort of embrace, mm -hmm. embrace it without knowing yes, the answer. So absolutely. thank you for sharing that. I want to talk a little bit about, I know it's sort of a catchphrase nowadays, but work-life balance and having a personal life, raising a family, really coming into your own outside of medicine, outside of cardiology or the ICU or cardiac surgery, um, and becoming like a fully realized person separate from your career and just sort of how both of you navigated that. I think it's when I when I started training, it was not, a, I don't think it was a phrase that even existed. Um, and I would not ever want to go back to that place where it was an expectation that as a young doctor, I worked 110 hours a week, that my research could continue for 72 straight hours. I mean, that was not, it might, it might have toughened me up, but it, it's not a place I would want to go back to or anyone to go back to. It probably helped me in some ways, but it also helped me realize it's not it's not something I would want for the younger generation now. But, you know, I can speak as for at least six years after he was born as a single parent and I made a you know, measured decision to do this. It's never the right time to have a child mm -hmm. <laughs> in medicine, whether you're a physician, a nurse practitioner, a nurse, a pharmacist, there's never the right time for anything. But at some point you accept that. You say, well, I'm going to be vulnerable here and I'm going to ask for help. And that might be a family member. It might be a nanny. It might be your friends. I had this phenomenal group of girlfriends who were just kind of, as my now husband says, they're my sister wives. 
um, or they're his sister wives, sorry, <laughs> who are always there to help. So that, you know, I, I did manage to have a family. I did manage, this is all personal, to create some work-life balance. And I did feel that I could legitimately counsel or mentor young doctors who are trying to navigate that themselves, whichever gender, it doesn't really matter. But when people come to me saying, how how do you do it? I could speak from personal experience. I could also discourage them waiting till they're like mid forties to do it, you know, because um, there's never a right time for anything. The only thing there's a right time for, for us is going into work in the morning, doing your best, treating some patients, doing your administration and coming home. That's the stable in our lives. The rest is within our control, but I like the work-life balance concept. I think we have to just be a little careful. It doesn't become life up here and work down there. Like everything, we need to make sure the balance is right, but I encourage it. We need life out there. We need people to keep us grounded, people to come home to, whether it's spouses, kids, friends, extended family, parents, doesn't matter. You need someone out there. And I'm with you on that. So when I first started, the idea was that, well, that's what I did. So that's what everybody else is going to do. So, you know, 100 hours while I was on call and then worked the full day the next day. You know, it was, that was just sort of the accepted culture in those days. And then all of a sudden, people started to realize that they were missing out on stuff. And I was a part of that. All of a sudden, you figure out that you're missing out on stuff. And I was really lucky to be able to have my son at that break in that time. And I fell in love with something that, oh my gosh, you know, there's this little human being and they really need you and they're a part of you. And so it was not only a good thing for me personally, because it did create a balance, but it was also a good thing for me work-wise. So rather than getting all invested in the work and, you know, I was it and I was the only one that could do it. You learn to to share in both realms. So you learn to seek help in your personal life when you need it. You learn to seek help in your professional life. And that way, then you learn how to partner and collaborate and grow others. It's not just about you and the same thing in your other life. And I was a single parent for pretty much most of my career. And we had an amazing relationship. I didn't miss his soccer games. I didn't miss his hockey tournaments. You know, that was really, really important. And vice versa, when I had to stay at work late or I had to go back into work, there was a time where he just said to me, that's okay, mom, the babies need you more than I do right now. And it's when he said that, he was a little tot, but when he said that, I realized that I somehow stumbled upon. I didn't plan it, but I had stumbled upon figuring out that balance. And we had a great relationship until this day. So when I, I was thinking, when I came into my current role, which is recent, and I was talking to our CEO, and I was, of course, incredibly flattered to be asked to do this. And I was not necessarily expecting to be asked to do this. But one of the in my mind, the deal breakers, and of course, you don't say this is a deal breaker to your soon to be boss, but if this was going to, in the long term, jeopardize what I've taken way too many years to achieve in life, which is that balance and 
external happiness and job satisfaction internal at work and outside. I couldn't do it. And I did say it to him. I said in a very gentle way, I said, you know, of course I will do it as long as everyone understands that there's soccer games and there's parent-teacher interviews and basketball practice. And trust me, I will maintain a balance, but I can't mm -hmm. sacrifice it. And he's all for it. So, you know, of course it's worked out, but it was front and center for me just in the last few months. Hey, listeners, it is time for a break to hear from one of our institutional sponsors for PCICS, Atrium Health. The Congenital Heart Center, established in 2010, has been ranked as one of the top 50 pediatric heart centers in the country by U.S. News and World Report for the last nine years. Their comprehensive services include cardiac imaging, diagnostic and interventional catheterization, invasive electrophysiology, dedicated cardiovascular intensive care staff, and regional referral programs in heart failure transplantation, adult congenital heart disease, and fetal echocardiography. Surgical and cardiac cath volumes are growing at a rate of 10 to 15% per year, and their state-of-the-art two-lab cardiac cath and EP suite opened in 2017 with dedicated staffing and anesthesia teams. Their new outpatient office complex opened in 2020 designed to treat all patients from fetal cardiology to ACHD. They have one of the most comprehensive cardiac neurodevelopment programs in the Southeast, providing a multitude of specialty services to their congenital heart patients in the same office suite. Participation in investigator-initiated and multi-center industry-sponsored studies is ongoing within the Heart Center with the support of an active clinical research department. Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute, as well as Levine Children's Hospital, are both premier referral facilities within Atrium Health, which spans the Carolinas and beyond. I feel very fortunate to have been able to work with both of you in some sort of capacity. You're both excellent leaders. Laura, you and I work together at TCH and it most of my time at TCH was probably during the hardest time for everyone in the world. And I felt very well-led and protected during COVID. And you were always very transparent and open and honest. And Louise, you and I have worked together with the APP course, and you've been a fantastic leader in starting it from the ground, you and Lindsay from nothing. Um, and you've led the group so well. So what are your guiding principles for both of you as a leader? Like, What is your North Star, if you will? I think for me, my style, I mean, when you read books about leadership, everyone has to be in a bucket. I guess it's, uh, I would call myself a servant leader. And it takes a while, I guess, to be comfortable with your leadership style being about the opportunities and the development of others. Personally, as you know, Jill, I'm pretty transparent and I think good communication style, I thought I've had it at the start way back, but I've had to work on it a lot because, again, you realize that your own assumptions aren't necessarily borne out in everything you do. But I think, honestly, openness, um, show some vulnerability. You see me <laughs> vulnerable in, in when you worked with us at TCH. And vulnerability doesn't mean people lose trust in you. I mean, you don't necessarily wear your heart so on your sleeve that People don't know whether you're going to be laughing or crying today, but um, some vulnerability, uh, openness, and good communication style. So I think the thing that I 
in terms of my leadership style that I say over and over again, and I actually, in my head all the time, is only kindness matters. Because there's a lot of opportunity, especially in leadership, where you can just totally get upset with someone or something or with an idea, with anything. Before I start a conversation, before I enter a situation, I just, only kindness matters, only kindness matters, only kindness matters. And then the other thing that I have always and still believe is that they are better than I, and together we are better than each other. So I know that it is my responsibility to give them the rope to be able to grow, but not enough rope to hang themselves. And so I, you know, you, I want to invest in them. I think communication is absolutely key. I learned it from me when I didn't feel I was communicated with. I didn't trust what was going on. Something would happen. So I learned that As I grew into more leadership roles, that communicating, being open, being honest, being transparent, being approachable were all things I need to be able to do to be able to lead a group of people, whether it was APPs or staff nurses or whatever. And then the other thing is thinking outside the box. Jill's been witness to this. If you hang with me a little bit, you will notice that my ideas come out in sputters and they may be the most off the wall things in the entire world. But then it's like, well, I don't expect to figure this out to the detail. This is just like, you know, the big gestalt. So let's see where it goes. So thinking outside the box and taking like these absolutely not medical things and to bringing them into what we consider medical nursing, CICU practice, it's absolutely vital. We have to be outside the box. I just really appreciate, well, I think what you both were speaking to, to me, really feels like it boils down to back to the human connection, transparency you were speaking of, relationships and investing in people. I think that has come up in different, you know, presentations and discussions. And we often think about our patients and our families and that we are in the business to serve our patients, right? And those, build those relationships. And I think what you're both bringing it back to, at least what is resonating with me, is our relationships in each other and how can we leverage that? How can we strengthen that to bring out the best in each other, to build trust, to bring foster innovation and then nurture it and explore it? And I think that's such um, a beautiful, timeless <laughs> quality that it seems both of you have those strengths and those values that have really um, helped your celebrated success and the many ripple effects that you probably will never even know all the people that you've touched because you've invested in them and seen them as an asset. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really special in the both of you. And I just wanted to celebrate that in the both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we've talked about leadership. We've talked about resilience, work-life balance, diversity, your amazing careers. The next thing that I, I would like to ask you, and probably the last question for this podcast, is the future. Tell us a little bit about your hopes, your dreams, your visions for what's to come. I think for me, I think part of the future is going to be about The immediate future, honestly, David, is about reestablishing what normal is after a pandemic. 
I think while Sadie was just talking there about <laughs> communication and openness and within team communication, I think we've lost so much ground in the last three years. Um, the masks, the remote working. To an extent, I think we've all hidden behind COVID as kind of an excuse just to disengage a little bit. And the, I think the next few years, it's going to take us longer than three years to get back to whatever our new baseline or get to whatever our new baseline is. So I think the team's have to actively rebuild. I think in the bigger picture of medicine, honestly, um, research is going to look very, very different. I believe the days of our randomized trials are over. I think technology is going to play. It frightens me, but luckily I'm not going to be a part of too much of its future. Mm -hmm. Technology is going to play a huge role in how we discover, how we innovate, how we assess different, um, different interventions. My only caution, I brought it out in my talk, is let's not let all the cool stuff that I'm not clever enough to understand a lot of get in the way of the basic need for, like you said, Louise, kindness. Kindness isn't the same as niceness. You know, kindness, mm. it should be in every interaction we have, whether it's with each other, with our patients, with our own families. Let technology not get so far ahead of us that we lose sight of the importance of good communication, of compassion, of listening, eye contact, all of those sort of fundamental things. But I think I think the future is very, very exciting. I think the big changes in cardiac intensive care, some of them, some of the big things that I talked about won't happen again because medicine has got to that almost the pinnacle. But maybe it's that last 5 to 10% that we're really going to sharpen with innovation technology. But let's not lose sight of the basics as well. Thank you. I'm on the same page as you are again. I think that in the future, what we're going to end up with is more complex care. And we're going to end up with more numbers of some form of congenital heart patient, whether it's the, the young child with complications or the adult. So our patient population is going to grow and the complexity of their care will grow. And then the technology and the therapies that we utilize to help these patients will continue to grow and we will continue to innovate. We'll innovate how we do our ICU care. We're going to innovate how we do acute care. We're going to innovate how Patients are cared for at home on an increasing basis as opposed to as always being inpatients where, you know, 40 years ago, it was unheard of that you would put a PICC line in somebody with endocarditis and send them home on IV antibiotics. Well, that that's basically standard of practice at this current at this current state. I think we're going to have to be extremely mindful and involved in future decision at the level of public policy and legislation for patients, for families, for healthcare, for institutions, and for our own practices. And then I think that in terms of nurse practitioners and advanced practice, that has come a long way to the point now where most institutions have advanced practice nurses in their cardiac ICUs or their PICUs. And I think that partnership will continue to evolve. And that partnership with fellows and intensivists will continue to grow, to develop. They will become able to rely on each other. It won't be like us and them. It'll be a together thing. Louise, I'm glad you said that last bit because, you know, when I started out, it was very us and them. Hmm. 
And there were lots of them because there was the physician, the nurse, cardiologist, the nurse, the surgeon, the intensivist, everyone in, in a bubble with occasional interactions. And coming to the United States from somewhere where we didn't have nurse practitioners, mm. for example, we had great nurses, but not NPs or, or PAs. It really opened my eyes as to the importance of that partnership and almost to a point where when people reach a level of experience that obviously you and Jill have hands down, you become professional partners. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe the field is there yet. I think everybody's ready, but we haven't quite got there I agree yet. With you. And that has I agree to be part you. of our future because there's not enough of any of us to go around. Mm -hmm. And it's almost become a sort of an artificial separation on some levels. So I, I would love within my career that partnership to be solidified mm -hmm. and not use the word provider. <laughs> but that's another culture shift, um, right? It's another yeah, paradigm it's shift. shift. It's another Absolutely. where the culture is yeah. and that is changing and it will continue to change into the future, whether it's driven because technology and therapies and numbers of patients require it or to be perfectly frank, because it's the right thing to do. Well, thank you both. It's been such an honor to speak to you. And congratulations again thank on this you. honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you again, Lara and Louise, for speaking with us today. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.